Hello and welcome to Queer is Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the trial of 20th century aristocrat, doctor and farmer Ewan Forbes. I'd like to acknowledge the Wawantari Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respect to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The episode will include period-typical intersexism, transphobia, homophobia, and misogyny. It also includes in-depth discussion of medical procedures, including discussion of bodies and genitalia, and a brief mention of an invasive medical examination, which will include the use of anaesthetic without consent. It will also contain brief mentions of harassment by the press, sex and death in a car accident. Lastly, it will contain misgendering and outdated language for trans and intersex people in quotes. So if any of that sounds like something that you would rather not listen to, please feel free to skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes instead. So this episode is going to center around Ewan's trial in addition to Ewan's life, as I kind of indicated at the start there. So I want to, before we get started properly, tell you a little bit about the context of that trial. Ewan was assigned female at birth, and he was raised as a girl, but over his early adulthood he gradually socially transitioned until he was living full-time as a man. In 1952 he legally changed his name and sex, and in 1967, after the death of his brother, he became the first in line to inherit the baronetcy of Craigieburn. This followed the male line of succession, and his legal sex was challenged by his cousin John, who was second in line, resulting in a court case. The result of the court case was that Ewan was found to be an intersex person who was predominantly male, and he was allowed to inherit the title. Since then, various people have contended that Ewan was actually transgender and had pretended to be intersex in order to access legal transition, which obviously we'll discuss throughout the episode. The records of Ewan's trial were therefore a major source for this episode. They allow us to discuss the ways in which a person whose sex was, for whatever reason, deemed indeterminate by that society would be categorized as either male or female by the medical and legal systems, as well as the ways in which someone could try and influence that decision to, you know, go whichever way they wanted it to go. The evidence that they discussed in this trial, as we'll see, to try and determine what his quote-unquote real sex were, include information about his body and his medical history, but also about his childhood, his marriage, and his place in his community. The other major source I used was a biography called The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, which was published in November of 2021. This book is the first full-length biography of Ewan, and it was written by Zoe Playden, who is the Emeritus Professor of Medical Humanities at the University of London, amongst many other qualifications. Playden understands Ewan to be transgender rather than intersex, and if we just sort of take that at face value for the moment, her biography clears a lot of the hurdles that other biographies of historical trans people stumble at. She clearly understands him to be a man, and she describes him as such throughout the book. In particular, she uses his chosen name, Ewan, and he him pronouns throughout his life, even in childhood before his transition. Very basic, but revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, Doesn't this is... randomly switch back to his birth name when she feels like he's in a like feminine frame of mind. In the feminine zone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is what I would consider 
consider to be best practice for trans biographies. It's our current practice on this podcast, and this is the first time I've ever seen it done in a biography. Good work. It's not Zoe. revolutionary because we've been doing it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's true. <laughs> Zoe obviously heard Chris Fact and was like, oh, that's what you're meant to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put my cards on the table, I lean towards agreeing with Playden that Ewan was transgender rather than intersex. We'll discuss it throughout. There'll be evidence. Maybe you guys will have different (laughs) feelings, but I lean that way. However, I feel her case for this is weakened by what are quite poor research practices throughout her book, with some examples being like overstating evidence, taking quotes out of context and making leaps of logic. We'll discuss examples of some of these issues, but... What is harder for me to demonstrate with one of examples is the generally less than clear style in which the book is written. Playden never really systematically argues for some of the contentions she makes in the book. She kind of treats them as established facts, but she also never really lays out what some of them are, leaving me to try and piece together what her contentions are and then decide if they're reasonable. I actually went and looked at some lectures she'd given and interviews and stuff like that because when I was writing the script for this, I thought, is that what she was arguing? Or have I like made this up? Am I straw manning her? And I had to go check that she'd actually said some of these things. So that's kind of how the book was. That's very unfortunate for what sounded when you started talking about it, like a really promising biography. Yes. Yeah. You can imagine the emotional rollercoaster I went through in November, 2021, (laughs) which is my birthday month. I'll have you know. She also presents her understanding of Ewan as trans in order to develop a wider narrative of 20th century trans and intersex history that I feel is pretty questionable and which we'll return to at length at the end of the episode. So there's a lot going on. Ewan's not even been born yet. No. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Ewan was born on the 6th of September 1912 to John and Gwendolyn Forbes Semphill. Ewan had a brother, William, and a sister, Margaret. So we're really in the good old British name genre here. Ewan's brother was 19 years older than him and his sister was seven years older than him. He and Margaret had little in common and they were never close, but he hero-worshipped William, who left school at 15 to begin an engineering apprenticeship and then went on to become a world-famous aeronautical expert. Oh, cool. That is, like, about all we'll kind of hear about William's life, which is unfortunate because it was a wild ride in the background of this biography. (laughs) He's a giant weeb. (laughs) And he loves Japan a lot, and his children called him (laughs) Papa-san. I would love more information about this man, but I understand that it's not relevant. No, we don't have time. The Forbes-Semphill family was a distinguished family, and Ewan's father held both a baronetcy and a barony. (laughs) What's the difference? Yes. So, (laughs) welcome to the UK peerage. So, the UK peerage is its system of hereditary titles. It has five ranks, those being Duke, Marquess, Earl, Viscount, and Baron. So, he's a baron. That's where that fits. Is that like the ranking of those ranks? Like is a baron the lowest one in that list or was that just a list? No, I think that's how that is. Dukes are definitely a high one. So that seems right. Yeah. Separately, the UK has the baronetage, which is also a system of hereditary honours, but it's separate from the peerage. And in its current form was instituted by King James I in the 17th century. Thanks, James. I simply want a nap having to think about this. It won't actually, like, we won't have to kind of navigate the structure of this. Good. Is Burke's Um, peerage going to be here today? Oh, nice. 
It is now, though. I'm sorry for bringing Burke's period into your lives. So the Forbes and Semple families had been united by marriage a few generations earlier, and so Ewan's father, John, has both the Forbes baronetcy and the Semple barony. Ewan's parents were therefore Lord and Lady Forbes Semple, and he and his siblings were referred to as the Honourable. So as a baron, you don't get addressed as baron? No, I don't know. All right. I'll allow it. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't allow it. I will not allow the British, like, <laughs> aristocracy at all, but that's an aside. Yeah. I don't know. I know that there's a lot of, like, etiquette around these things. I learned as little as I had to. To getting it as soon as this episode's over? I mean, maybe what's the difference between a barony and a baronetcy will come up in a pub quiz one day. I feel like it won't just because the answer is not, like, a two-word thing you can just write down on yeah, your pub true. quiz. Yeah, that's true. Like, how would you express that I in a pub know. quiz? Everything I've just it's said It's a bonus you. round. So are we going to be calling him the Honourable throughout no. the episode? Why will we be calling him Citizen? <laughs> We can call him Ewan. Ewan himself, actually, like, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but never kind of really went by this title anyway, which I think is a point in his paper. Good. Uh, but how insufferable is it that, like, local, you know, adults have to refer to these children as, like, oh, the honourable so-and-so. It's like, you're nine. No honour when you're nine. I've been nine. <laughs> we will return to this more broadly, but it's worth immediately pointing out that this background is obviously going to lend Ewan enormous privilege in his interactions with the medical and legal systems going forth. Yeah. So the family held large estates in Aberdeenshire in Scotland, which included a mansion at the village Fintray where they lived for most of the year, and then also 20 miles away, Craigie the Castle. The castle is notable for being faintly pink. Oh, cool. This is previously due to the use of traditional plastering that used a pink-tinged granite from the local area. Okay. And now it's due to dye. <laughs> so as in, it was just pink for so long that they were like, although we've changed our building methods, we need to make it consistent. We need to, we need to keep it pink, yeah. Each summer, the family would temporarily relocate to the castle in a move that they called the flitting, and Ewan would ride his pony the 20 miles for the expedition as soon as he was old enough to do so. It's a very, very fairy tale esque childhood, yeah. But again, indicative of enormous privilege. The flitting. To my the pink flitting. castle. <laughs> On my pony. I will ride past the peasants who must call me honourable. <laughs> Ewan was taught at home by tutors until he went to school in Dresden when he was 15, by which time he had learned French and German. The family were deeply involved with the traditional Scottish life, and at his father's instruction he learnt Doric, which was the local Scots language. He attended Presbyterian worship, and he learned Scots country dancing. He's a very Scottish child. He's a very Scottish child. Ewan gave an account of his childhood at the trial. He said his tendencies were to dress as a boy, lead a fairly rough sort of life, and described his interests as riding, shooting, tobogganing, fishing. He preferred to wear the kilt or riding breeches, feeling in dresses like a bird that had its wings clipped. It's wild to me that he's like, no, 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 I wear the man's skirt. I guess culturally in Scotland that yeah, makes like, sense. Yeah, like it makes sense. But from the outside, you're like, these are two different cuts of skirt. I mean, I guess also if we're in like the early 1900s, the women's skirt is probably much longer. Yeah, that's true. And more restrictive because of that. More petticoats. You don't wear a petticoat yeah. under your kilt. No, you famously wear nothing. <laughs> He also discussed his childhood medical history. Ewan recalled that at about six or seven, he'd seen a pediatrician and then a specialist because he was having difficulty passing urine. While studying in Europe as a teenager, he saw several doctors, according to him, because his mother was concerned that he wasn't menstruating and because he had quite bad acne. He recalls that at about 19 or 20, I found it necessary to shave because I had quite a lusty growth of hair on my chin and cheeks. And there also, of course, was hair growth on my body, on my chest in particular. He also makes a point of saying, it might be helpful to add this, there is a tie-up between male development and boils and pimples and things. 
Mm-hmm. So this is clearly implying that when he was a teenager, he experienced physical effects from testosterone. By the time of the trial, the records from these appointments had been lost, and Ewan's word is the only evidence we have that any of this ever happened. We should keep in mind that his description of his childhood gender presentation and medical history are both being presented to confirm his maleness to the judge. He stresses this information so as to demonstrate that he had undergone male puberty at the expected time. Mm -hmm. He's also clearly implying that he underwent these changes spontaneously, lending support to the understanding that he was an intersex person but still fundamentally male, as it was considered in this context. Taking these statements at face value and understanding Ewan to be intersex is one possibility – But we'll get into further evidence as we go along and when we get up to the trial in particular about why some people have argued otherwise. I mean, I think it's always reasonable to question what people say in trials. Like, their motivations are just overt. But that doesn't mean we have to assume that everything they say is always a lie. No, no, absolutely not. I just feel like I definitely see sometimes people do that thing where they're like, he said this in a court of law. Mm. And then they read that as like objective truth or like (laughs) a more reliable testimony. And I'm like, really? I mean, I guess there are legal consequences for lying in court that there aren't when you're like at the pub. That's true. But there's much less motivation to lie at the pub. I mean, it's I mean... (laughs) Clayton understands that Ewan was transgender and that he didn't experience this spontaneous male puberty. Instead, she believes that Ewan and his mother sought out hormone therapy, accounting for the medical appointments that he recounts, and that this resulted in the acne and the facial hair, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, Does she have evidence? Could you even get hormone therapy in 1920 or whatever? Let me answer these questions. <laughs> okay. So the first question this raises is how accepting his mother was. At the trial, Ewan recalled his mother describing him to a guest as such a queer child, you know, sort of tomboy and very masculine. And he said, she didn't know what to make of me. He also said there was a fair amount of entertaining done, and even if there was not, one was expected to dress up in what I would describe as frilly things or dresses and things of that kind. So my overall sense with the limited information we have is that Ewan's family was certainly not extremely oppressive, but that there was some tension in the household regarding his gender. It seems clear from that that they expected him to be different. Hmm. Clayton, however, says that Ewan was largely allowed to dress and live as he wanted as a child, except for on special occasions when he had to wear dresses due to his parents' social propriety. Well, that's explicitly not what Ewan said. (laughs) Welcome to hell, Alice. (laughs) She depicts Ewan's mother as being extremely accepting of her transgender son, and his father less so, but sort of essentially turning a blind eye and just sort of being generally grumpy about it. Playden overstates, in my opinion, how accepting Ewan's parents were, and I think she has decided that this was the case based on her theory that Ewan was supported in medically transitioning as a teenager. So she's essentially, like, decided that he medically transitioned as a teenager with his parents' support and used that as evidence for his parents' support. That's my theory. So then there's the question of, like, as Alice asked, could one get hormones at this time? So Ewan was in Europe from about 1927 to 1933, and that Mm -hmm. is the period of time in which this would have begun. Playden says at this time, quote, there was information and at least experimental solutions available, end quote. And she mentions primitive forms of HRT that were available in the 1920s and 1930s. This is technically true. But to the best of my understanding, it's impossible for Ewan to have experienced the changes that he claimed to when he claimed to have experienced them, because testosterone was not isolated until 1935, two years after Ewan left Europe. Prior to this, there were various oral medications, for example, and other kind of experimental procedures containing like animal testicular tissue, which you could take. These were largely marketed towards combating impotence, but if 
you know, you wanted to masculinize your body, you could use them for whatever reason. Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute, for example, marketed one of these products, Testifortin, which was a pill containing pulverized testicular tissue from bulls. However, these drugs did not contain enough testosterone to be effective and were functionally a placebo. Okay. So, like, you know, if some medical historian wants to chime in or anyone has any more information, that's fine. I will correct myself. But as far as I see, this is just not supportable. Mm-hmm. That's a very kind of specific and strong claim to make mm-hmm. with no supporting evidence. Mm-hmm. She's assuming his parents' support. She's assuming his oh, access to hormones. Those would be big assumptions to make today. Mm-hmm. Those are bigger assumptions to make in 1930. Mm. I do want to clarify, it is clear that by the time of the trial, Ewan had experienced the effects of testosterone. There are photos of him, for example, with male pattern baldness. However, by this time, he was in his mid-50s, and because there's no evidence for these teenage medical appointments of him experiencing the described effects of testosterone as a teenager, except for his word, I don't think these later evidence of him having had testosterone in his body is evidence for Platon's theory. Platon does claim that pictures of Ewan as a young man indicate the effects of testosterone. I disagree. We can't like categorically deny this. Testosterone works differently in different bodies, but there's certainly no picture of him when he was like 20 with a beard, for example, mm-hmm. or at least not one that I'm aware of. This doesn't mean that Ewan wasn't transgender. He could have just accessed testosterone later in life than Platon suggests. And spoilers, I will be suggesting that later. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but what I want us to take away from this are some of the problems that plague Platon's work, and these are very much ones that continue throughout the book, but I'm not going to stop and go into this much detail every time because it would take us forever. Yep. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. In 1933, Ewan returned home from Europe to celebrate his 21st birthday. He then asked his father to fund him studying medicine at the University of Aberdeen. His father refused, seemingly viewing this as a bad investment. Ewan instead threw himself into learning farm management and doing physical labor on the Fintry and Craigiever estates. In February of 1934, his father passed away. William, his brother, became the 19th Baron Sempill and the 10th Baronet Forbes of Craigiever. William was disinterested in the agricultural administration that running the estates required, and he paid Ewan a salary to manage them instead. Ewan was very well suited to this work, and he was very involved with the local people and the local community. And now that he had his own income, he was able to save to go to medical school. By 1939, at the age of 27, Ewan had saved enough to cover those expenses, and he started his medical degree. He graduated in 1944 at the age of 32, and he went to work at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary for a year. He then became a GP in Alfred, a town which lay between Fintray and Craigiever. His practice covered a massive geographical area of 200 square miles and 4,000 people. Wow. It included challenging terrain, and he would travel by horse or on skis when he needed to go somewhere a vehicle couldn't go. That's pretty cool. You might have your doctor just, like, skiing into Mm. town. (laughs) His patients remembered him as a kind and caring doctor, especially good with children. It no doubt helped that this was his own community, and Ewan noted that he was someone who knew their ways and could speak their language. So was he presenting as a man or as a woman at this time in his life? This is an interesting question that (laughs) I don't really feel like Platon fully clarifies, and that's probably because we don't fully have the picture. Okay. So at this time, Ewan was still legally female, and he was referred to by his dead name in the papers. He was in the papers sometimes because he is the honourable so-and-so. Oh, yes. So people are interested in his goings-on. He said in the trial that he was involved with few social activities during his time living at Craigiever in the 1930s, 
Quote, because the sex assigned to me was not what I felt I was, and I felt if I had to dress up and conform as I thought I should, dress in female clothing, I felt I was acting a false part, and I could not be happy in it. However, he gradually began to take on a male gender presentation. He formed a Scots dance troupe called the Dancers of Don, because it was largely comprised of women, or people assigned female at birth anyway. Several of them would take on traditional men's clothing to dance the male roles. In 1944, while he was at medical school, his mother passed away, and we have a photograph of him at the interment wearing a male kilt. When he was a GP, he habitually wore a suit, and Playden tells us that this was explained to his nieces by their nanny, as due to the need to get in and out of the car a lot on doctor's rounds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're talking about the kind of activity he was doing, like he's, you know, riding his horse or skiing or whatever to his appointments, I feel like that does put him in a position where he can quite easily justify presenting in a more masculine way mm. just for practicality. Yeah. Yeah. But it does suggest that this is something that he was kind of justifying rather than something that he was seen as just naturally entitled to do. Yeah. yeah. He also never went by his legal first name, which, again, like hadn't yet changed. At university, he was known by the nickname Wink because he was always winking. <laughs> That's such a weird fact. <laughs> And like he liked to wink at people, like yeah, you know, just jovially. <laughs> and if a more formal name was required, the students were habitually referred to by their surnames. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So he found ways to avoid that. He said of this time, I was totally absorbed in my medical practice, and I dressed as you know in male attire, and my patients all regarded me as a male practitioner. His colleague, Dr. Manson, was asked at the trial whether Ewan was regarded as a woman doctor, and he said. Yes and no, I think if I can put it that way. I don't think generally the patients looked on Dr. Forbes' sample at that time as a woman doctor, you know, completely as one would compare with a woman doctor elsewhere. He was also asked what sex Ewan appeared to be to him, and he replied, Our conversation has always been as male to male, and that his interests to my mind are wholly male. I shot with him, and we've walked up in very hilly rough country, and to my mind his stamina on the hill was beyond any female, and all his interests and pursuits and the way he followed them were to me male. <laughs> so very sexist. Yeah, I was going to say, that's weird and gender essentialist, but thanks for the support. Yes. <laughs> This is quite a different picture from the lives of other trans people we've talked about who generally go stealth in Mm. order to be able to live as their gender. And I really wish that we had a clearer picture of it. Yeah. uh, Because this kind of picture of him navigating this transition just within the community he grew up in is really interesting. Mm. Playden presents Ewan as living as a man but spends little time kind of querying what this looked like in practice or how it worked. I feel like because she just talks about him as Ewan, a boy, and then a man, like, right from childhood, although that's good, in a way it kind of brushes over a lot of this stage of his life. And I guess especially if she believes that he was on hormones from quite a young age and Mm. supported by his family, she's painting a picture of someone who's basically socially transitioned quite young, which may not be his reality. And I think from some of those quotes, like, he's clearly not just simply living as a man in his community. Mm. It's a bit more complicated than that, yeah, more contextual yeah. than that. Playden largely puts this acceptance that she understands to have taken place down to upper-class tact, saying his aristocratic circles were used to a wider range of individual expressions and personal relationships than the rest of society. This, <laughs> <That's>, uh, yeah. <laughs> this isn't entirely satisfactory to me, but his position of authority as both a doctor and local aristocracy presumably would have played some part in this. Yeah. It's hard to say without having lived in upper-class British society in, you know, in the 1940s or whatever, what 
upper-class tact actually looked like then and how realistic it is to claim that because of upper-class tact, everyone would have just accepted that, ah, you know, well, Ewan used to be a girl, but basically he's living as a man now. Yeah, I feel like we'd probably have a lot more examples if this was as simple as she makes it out to be. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I believe that upper-class tact stopped people from, like, questioning him at the dinner party about this. But I don't think that stopped people from, like, questioning in general what was happening there. Or, like, just misgendering him. Yeah, exactly. I also want to point out that it seems to me that this is a much more likely time for him to begun HRT than in his teens. He's now a doctor. He's an adult. Both of his parents have passed away. Uh, And also HRT is more available now. And also it exists. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Pretty key. In 1947... Ewan purchased a 3,000-acre estate called Brooks, which was a few miles from Alford. In 1950, he began a relationship with Isabella Mitchell, who went by Patty, and he soon asked her to marry him. <laughs> Are you laughing at Patty deriving from Isabella? <laughs> yes. Classic British name. Yes. <laughs> Patty was a local woman, the daughter of a farmer and the same age as Ewan. They met in 1945 and she came to work for him as a receptionist and housekeeper. Around the time of his proposal, Ewan began the process of legally changing his sex. You make it sound like there's an established process for that. There isn't. (laughs) Okay, he just began it anyway. Well, yeah, there isn't, but I guess this kind of is the background of this episode. There are ways to do this if you are intersex and in the eyes of your society have just been mistakenly registered as the wrong one. There is not an established procedure, as far as I'm aware, for transgender people to do this because they're transgender and they would like to correct their birth certificates. The established procedure is like the doctor couldn't tell at birth and said the wrong thing on the birth certificate. Yeah, and even then, like, you know, I can only imagine this is pretty obscure to go about, like, doing legally. He was asked at the trial if he had legally changed his sex in order to marry his wife. He replied, I think, as you know, my wish always was to be a male, and this I did desire very much indeed, because the other way of life seemed to be impossible. But I did also very much want to get married, and I felt the right to have my own wife and my own house and take my place as other ordinary individuals. So kind of just debunking any suggestion that, He didn't identify as male, that he just wanted to do this in order to marry a woman. Mm -hmm. He began by making an appointment with Dr. Alexander Kowadius, who was an endocrinologist and intersex expert. At the trial, Ewan reported that Dr. Kowadius had believed he might have had undescended testicles and had given him testosterone to try and provoke their descent. We have evidence of these appointments. So... Certainly, this is bolder to fabricate than the earlier ones. The appointments that Ewan had as a child, allegedly, were in Germany just before the war. So those records are gone. Yeah. Alexander Kowadius was still alive. And so he could have been like, no, I never saw this guy if he wanted yes. to. He did not testify at the trial. I don't know if any documentation of this was presented at the trial. I had the like, mm. transcript, but not any kind of additional records. This could be a lie. However, I think that this is more believable because it's kind of part of this process. Like this leads to another appointment that leads to him legally changing his sex, which is a thing that definitely happened. Yeah. I mean, what's getting me here Mm. is the way that he's clearly told this story where he's like, when I was in my thirties, I met with an endocrinologist and started taking testosterone and played and has been like, no, I don't think so. The real truth, he did this much earlier at a time that would have been much more compelling to his I've always been a man Mm. narrative, if you know what I mean. Yeah, kind of dealing with Platon's narrative did kind of feel like swimming upstream. And I feel like there's kind of like a lot of work that I had to do that I normally kind of just expect 
the biography to do for me. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of signed up to read a book and check some citations. I didn't sign up to write a whole book, but unfortunately we don't always get what we want. <laughs> um, yeah, like I'm kind of willing to treat this appointment as if it probably happened in some form. Whether or not Dr. Coatius was like, yep, you probably have testicles or not is another thing that we could debate. Yeah. You know, obviously like if he was intersex and actually had undescended testicles and that's one thing, but if he was transgender – you know, it's possible that this is the first time he went on testosterone and that Coatius was aware he was transgender and was just quietly helping him transition. It's just as possible that he was already on testosterone as a doctor at this time. That would not have been difficult for yeah. him to just do. And he went in there, you know, with his body clearly having been influenced by testosterone and Coatius either genuinely thought he was intersex and may have had undescended testicles or just sort of went along with it to help him out. Yeah. I don't know. In any case, he named a specific guy which was like a step up yeah yeah like that's reasonably convincing yeah i guess also the other thing to note is although kawadius did not testify at his trial other men who were like experts in endocrinology or intersex variations and things like that at the time did and i can't imagine it's like that big of a circle yeah so again like it seems like maybe a bit too bold a lie to tell because it seems very easy to find that out but yep. I don't know, maybe. Mm. On Dr. Kowadius's advice, Ewan says, he wrote to Dr. Sidney Smith for advice on how to legally change his sex, providing as evidence a certificate signed by three doctors. These were Dr. William Manson, who was his assistant, James Phillips, who was one of his lecturers, and John Reed, a former fellow student. Sidney Smith was the Regis Chair of Forensic Medicine and the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Edinburgh University, and Ewan knew him socially through family connections already. Straight away, it's becoming apparent that it's a lot easier to transition legally when all your friends are doctors. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. when you're an aristocrat. Yeah. That also continues to be true to this day. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Sydney Smith spoke to the Register General personally on Ewan's behalf, who in turn wrote to the Sheriff Clerk of Aberdeen to make the correction. Shortly after this, Ewan received his new birth certificate with his name as Ewan and his sex as M. The Contemporary Legal Convention required that this be announced publicly, and on the 12th of September 1952, Aberdeen's press and journal included in the public notices Dr. E. Forbes Semple, Brux Lodge, Alford, which is to intimate that in future he'll be known as Dr. Ewan Forbes Semple. All legal formalities have been completed. A month later, on the 12th of October 1952, Ewan and Patty got married in a small private ceremony. I wonder what that newspaper announcement would have meant to just, like, your average person reading the paper. Like, was something like this common enough that they would have recognised that as a change of gender announcement, or would they not really have understood what Ewan was announcing? Yeah, I mean, this is context that I don't have, but would also very much like. Particularly, I think, as I said earlier, that this is such an unusual example of transition compared to other ones that we've talked about. Mm. Yeah, I, it would be very interesting to try and, like, go through and look at similar announcements and, you know, what, why... What year was this in? 1952. Okay, we could literally ask someone. Who? I don't know. Someone in Aberdeen who's old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's true. Well, look, if you're in Aberdeen and you're old, or if you're in Aberdeen and you're not old and you know someone who is old... <laughs> go ask your grandmas. Yeah, be like, Grandmother, I need to read you this. What do you think? What, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> This announcement was noted by the national and international press, especially because it meant that Ewan was now next in line of succession to the Forbes baronetcy. God, imagine having your transition announced by international media. 
Yeah. Reporters blocked the roads to try and speak with him, and he would bypass them driving over country in his Land Rover instead. Just skiing away yes. in the distance. <laughs> we don't really know too much about what his family thought about this, but Ewan does say in the trial that Margaret was very annoyed and she thought it was all a lot of nonsense, and she was aggrieved because she had heard it from my sister-in-law and not from me direct. I wonder if that means that he told his sister-in-law but not his sister? Or if his sister-in-law just read the paper. Yeah, I I don't know, unfortunately. Playden does say that both William and Margaret found out, not from you indirectly, she Mm -hmm. doesn't say they found out from anyone in particular. I have just read to you the quote from the trial that indicates that he didn't tell Margaret directly, but I have no idea what our source is for him not telling William directly. And I thought that was actually a little odd because he's on a lot better terms with William than Margaret. Mm -hmm. So I kind of expected it with Margaret, but I don't know. Mm. That is the least of the mysteries in this biography. (laughs) (laughs) Reactions from the general community seem to have been fairly muted. Ewan told family friends that the certificate had been changed to correct a grievous error which had occurred at my birth and had led to me being registered as a girl instead of a boy. Playden says that, fortunately for him, natural good manners, Scottish reticence, and his own popularity ensured no further information was needed. <laughs> I love the amount of weight she's putting on these, like, cultural things where we just don't ask people awkward questions. <laughs> which, like, if that were the case, there would be a lot more trans people in, like, Upper class Scotland, right? Yeah. But just in Scotland, if it's like, it's not aristocratic reticence, it's just Scottish reticence. Wouldn't it be amazing if instead of being Turp Island, the British were just so like stiff lipped that accidentally there were just like so many trans people there because everyone was too awkward to say anything. <laughs> yeah. And it was like this trans haven where trans people were like, go on then, comment. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the case. I also love that his natural popularity came into this. Yeah. <laughs> everyone just liked him that much. They were like, all right. <laughs> The community in general gave Ewan and Paddy wedding gifts. He received a dirk and a desk, and she received a set of luggage, and apparently that was it. (laughs) I don't mean like those were the only gifts, I just mean like that was kind of the extent of the response to this. (laughs) The community response was just like, yeah, this is a normal wedding. Yes, we bought you a desk. I was kind of thinking, like, those gifts are quite gendered. And I was like, well, yeah, men write and women travel, I guess. Like, (laughs) one set of these gifts feels gendered. I don't know about the luggage. Yeah, I feel like you'd give anyone luggage. Ewan's sexuality was one of the things discussed at the trial. He gave testimony that he had never been attracted to a man and that he had had sex with several women, all of whom had gone on to marry men. Okay. You know, these are some heterosexual women. Paddy was also questioned about their sex life, and we're not going to go into detail. It's not necessary. It was a very invasive set of questions she was asked, but it was seen as important by the judge that they had what he considered a normal heterosexual sex life. Ewan also underwent the term in Miles test in the lead up to the trial, which is a psychological test administered by a psychologist, Mrs. Cordner. Cordner testified that Ewan had a masculine outlook and that he, quote, gave responses that showed a fairly close, affectionate, perhaps dependent relationship for a member of the opposite sex. She was asked if the test would have given the same result if Ewan was a masculine lesbian, to which she replied, no, I think there would have been a great deal more conflict and disturbance in the series than there were in his. 
His were a fairly normal masculine series suggesting a fairly positive, affectionate relationship. So, <laughs> again, obviously terrible, Yeah, but good for you and I guess. There's a lot of these people coming out of the woodwork for you and just like, yeah, no, absolutely, this is completely a man. A woman could absolutely never do these things. Yeah. What kind of test is this? Do you I, know? I don't actually know. I'm sure we could find a copy of this test, like we have the name. Yeah. It's... I understand a standard psychological test of the time. But I was like, well, this is clearly nonsense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I am going to find this test and try and right. take it and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess we will release some bonus content where we sit the term and miles test. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do this on air. <laughs> how, you know, full of disturbance it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really will just break it by being too gay. So yeah, like this episode really is like, you know, social prejudices come to bat for you and yay! <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of those things. Like, privilege is not a bad thing. The absence of it is a bad thing. Like, everyone should have what Ewan's getting here, you know? But I think there's two aspects here. There's the privilege of having all your friends be doctors and being an aristocrat. But there's also like, oh, well, women can't climb hills, so it must be Oh a yeah, <laughs> obviously. Sexism is a bad thing. But yeah. in general, the fact that society comes out to bat for Ewan is not... A bad thing. Oh, no. That's a good thing. Everyone should just have that treatment. Yes. We know fairly little about Ewan's life over the next decade. He disbanded the dancers of Don the year he married Patty, saying he was now too busy. And in 1955, he stepped back from his medical practice to focus on managing his estate. So he raised cattle and sheep and various crops. In 1959, he won the Alfred Show Prize for Best Jersey Cow. How incredible. (laughs) And he also became an elder at his local Presbyterian church. An upstanding member of the community. I want to see a picture of that cow, though. I don't have I mean, maybe we could go find the paper. I don't have it here, but like, it did include the name of the cow. Oh, all. fantastic. What, so, I, you didn't write down the name of the cow? The name of the cow was difficult to say. <laughs> okay. Because it was Scottish? No. There was a whole cow situation. <laughs> I'm so curious there, there was like, Okay, all right. I'll tell the cow story. <laughs> so the name of the cow was like Bridie Ginestii or something like that. And the first part was his niece's name, I believe. And I did think about putting this in because he, like Playden included that he told her that he picked out one with a very silky nose for her, oh. which is very cute. But also apparently like Ginestii is something to do with like the herald of their family. And I was like, this is some kind of crop or something. But I Googled it and literally the only result that came up was Playden's book. And I didn't want you to ask me about this crop. So I just submitted the whole thing. <laughs> The truth comes out. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so there you go. (laughs) All right, time to switch tones. Okay. Okay. On the 30th of December 1965, Ewan's brother William died from complications resulting from a minor surgical procedure. William had been both Baron Sempel and Baronet of Craigiever, as we know. He had no male children, and the press began to speculate about the inheritance of these titles. The barony could proceed to a female heir, and so it went to his daughter Anne. However, the baronetcy had to be inherited by the next male in line, and so Ewan expected that this would now be him. However, the press reported that his cousin John intended to challenge him on the basis that Ewan was not really male. John had never visited Craigiever or the family there. He had previously been in the military, but was now trying his hand in an acting and producing career. I'll get out of here, John. <laughs> Playden says that he had recently been involved with a comedy about a family raising lion cubs in their home in Scotland using his own home as the set. The project <laughs> failed. <laughs> I spent a little while trying to kind of find something out about this movie and I didn't find anything, but I would 
love any further information. I just hope it failed because of the chaos of bringing lion cubs into your home. Yeah, I hope he fully just released lion cubs into his family home. Yeah. (laughs) John arranged a meeting with Ewan on the 5th of January 1966. They came to the agreement that John would not make a claim for the baronetcy if Ewan relinquished Craigieber and Fintry to him. Wait, hold on. So it was like, I won't make a claim if you... Give, give me your to- house. Yeah. So he wouldn't have the title. Oh, I see. Um, but he would have the property. Okay. So John really just wants the pink castle. No, John wants it all. Just wait a moment. Okay. Prior to William's death, Craigieber Castle had been signed over to the National Trust, but the family retained control of part of the estate and items such as family jewels and portraits. Ewan now signed this all over to John. Ewan's lawyers then received notice that John was making a claim to the baronetcy anyway. So John's just a bad man. Yeah, John is not a good man. Yeah. Yeah. Ewan was served a summons to settle the matter in court. The most insufferable thing about John was this quote that Playden included where apparently he would say, like, you know, he was going to receive the title after Ewan passed away anyway because Ewan and Paddy didn't have kids, but he wanted it now because Daddy always promised me a title. <laughs> John! <laughs> I, I do not know the source for this quote, so right. I don't know where that comes from, and I always put it in just because I wanted to rag on this guy, and then I was like, no, that's not very good ethics, but I've told you it now anyway. So. <laughs> I mean, who's the real villain okay. here? It's me. Okay. Strong Draco Malfoy energy. Strong Draco Malfoy energy, yeah. <laughs> This guy's middle name is like Cumnock or something. (laughs) Yeah, so it was John Alexander Cumnock Forbes. (laughs) And I'm sure this is normal in his social circles, but I mean, they exiled our ancestors, so now we get to be rude. (laughs) Yeah, so it's spelled (laughs) C-U-M-N-O-C-K. You know how a lot of, like, British people, as we've mentioned, went by names that were not their names, such as Patty? (laughs) Are we sure he went by John? The hearing began on Monday, the 15th of May, 1967. In this case, the verdict was decided not by a jury, but by a judge, in this case, Lord Jack Hunter. Over the four-day trial, both sides presented evidence to influence the judge to understand Ewan as either male or female. We've already seen some of the sorts of evidence considered relevant. You know, I've been discussing the trial the entire time, basically. This has included information about his occupation of a male social role, including discussions of his childhood and adult gender presentation and his male role in his community, as well as discussions of physical characteristics, such as his supposed lack of periods and the presence of testosterone and potentially testes in his body. There are two other major pieces of evidence that I would like to add to our discussion of the trial. The first thing concerns Ewan's sister Margaret. Unlike Ewan, Margaret had been sent to boarding school at six, and as she was seven years older than Ewan, they didn't really have any kind of shared childhood and they were not close. Ewan recounts that they had not got along even as children and recalls an incident in adulthood when after staying at her house for a weekend, Ewan was presented with a huge bill. (laughs) Wow. After which he never went back. Yeah. That's not really an acceptable way to treat your siblings. Imagine if you presented me with a bill for all the tea I had drunk. (laughs) Six million dollars. Margaret had never married. In 1938, she joined the Women's Auxiliary Territorial Service and ended the war as a wing officer in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. I realised that you were continuing your sentence to, you know, she joined this and then she ended the war in this, but it really sounded like, so she joined the Land Army and ended the war. That's what I heard as well. I was like, (laughs) single-handedly, she did it. Thanks, Margaret. After the war, Margaret fell in love with Joan Wright, who had been part of her social circle and had also joined the ATS. Wait, hold on. Margaret is gay? Margaret is gay! Oh, what? (laughs) 
I feel um, much better about Margaret now. <laughs> I still don't like Margaret. I mean, Irene will be biased by lesbians if she wants to. <laughs> Relationships between women were particularly invisible at the time. Lesbian author Val McDermott said of growing up in rural Scotland in the 1960s, the word lesbian was in our vocabulary, but it was a kind of fabled beast like unicorns. <laughs> you heard about them, but you never met one. Joan technically maintained her own separate house, but in practice she and Margaret lived together at Drummanor Castle. The castle had belonged to the Forbes clan until the 1770s, and Margaret had returned it to the family and restored it. So they have not just one castle, but multiple castles. Yeah, their family is like a very old family, and so like I believe that Ewan's estate also used to belong to the Forbes clan, and he likewise kind of brought it back into the family. I think like this whole area just sort of used to belong to them. (laughs) Playden speculates that Margaret would have viewed Ewan's relationship with Patty as a lesbian relationship and that the social recognition afforded to them, but not to her and Joan might've been part of the hostilities between them. I did wonder that. Like, it's wild speculation, but Mm. it seems plausible that Margaret would have complicated feelings about Mm. this. Yeah, like, a lot of what Playden says is like, okay, you know, huge if true, but I think in this case some speculation about Margaret's feelings is warranted, so yeah. Yeah. Whilst collecting evidence for their case, John's solicitor wrote to Margaret asking her for information about Ewan having been brought up as a girl. In response, Margaret wrote a letter, which I won't read in its entirety, but which said, among other things, I always regarded Dr. Ewan as my sister, and I feel quite sure there was never any doubt as to her sex. She went through the phase, as I did myself and so many girls do, of wanting to be a boy. She had her periods regularly, just the same as any other girl. That will show her on whose side I'm on. Ewan found out that she had written the letter, and he and Patty had a lengthy conversation with Margaret about the situation. Because John had the letter, it couldn't have been fully withdrawn, but she could have said that she was not in full possession of the facts, or that she'd been pressured to write the letter to try and mitigate it if she wanted to. Mm -hmm. On Tuesday the 25th of October, Margaret said goodbye to Joan, telling her that she was going to dine at Brock's on Friday and meet with Ewan's doctor to kind of further discuss the matter. On Friday, she drove towards Brux and her Land Rover and collided with another vehicle and was killed. Oh, Oh, what? Ewan's doctor was also heading to Brux because he was going to meet Margaret and he found the ambulance and pronounced Margaret dead at the scene. He would have then presumably driven on to Brux to inform Ewan. Margaret left everything to Joan, who would have had to bear her group alone for a relationship that was not publicly recognised for what it was. Ewan's lawyer testified that he had spoken with Margaret after the long conversation that she had had with Ewan and Patty. He said, She mentioned to me that she had been at dinner the previous evening and that she had made a statement which she very much regretted, but she felt that she had said what she had said and she could not withdraw. She, however, went on to use another curious expression, either at this conversation or another. She said, When Brux walked out of my life, I thought I'd lost a sister, but I am by no means sure now she is not a brother. Playden believes that Margaret would have ultimately testified on Ewan's side, but will, of course, just never know. And obviously, like, Ewan's lawyer is going to say that, yes. whether or not Margaret actually said that to Ewan's lawyer. Especially now that Margaret is dead. Yeah, everyone involved here has strong ulterior motives to represent Margaret in certain ways. They do. In the trial, Ewan was questioned at length about Margaret's letter, and he goes to considerable effort to try and undermine its contents. Ewan testified that Margaret had included false information in the letter, whether out of ignorance or deliberate hostility, including about Ewan having menstruated. He was pressed repeatedly as to why she would have done that. 
He gave the argument that Margaret had not been told anything when Ewan didn't begin to menstruate because of his parents' Victorian prudishness and a concern that she wouldn't keep that information to herself. He also said that she felt like an outsider because neither he nor William got along with her, but they were close with each other, implying that she had purposefully set out to hurt Ewan with the letter. Lastly, he claimed that Margaret was in considerable debt, saying, apparently her total debt was £12,000. I cannot vouch for these figures, but I've seen them on paper. Whether these statements are true or not cannot be verified. After Margaret's death, Ewan had no surviving family and he could effectively say whatever he liked. How does Margaret's debt factor into Margaret's statement about Ewan? Ewan is implying that John was going to, like, pay her. Like, effectively bribe her to make these statements because Mm -hmm. she was very strapped for cash. But also if she was strapped for cash, she wouldn't have had anything to leave to Joan. Well, you can have a house, but no cash. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, we don't know if any of that is true. However, as with so much else of what Ewan has said, he's obviously saying these things to support his case. Yeah. So that's item one. The other thing I wanted to discuss was the results of a medical examination that Ewan underwent before the trial. Ewan requested that the trial be held in private. Normally it would be held like in a court and the press could Mm -hmm. come in and like maybe the public and in this case it's literally just held in a solicitor's office john agreed to this on the condition that ewan undergo a medical examination so ewan went to the hospital and was required to strip and then underwent a lengthy examination by doctors strong and price during which they examined his genitals and made observations regarding his secondary sex characteristics including his hairline body hair patterns and complexion He was also required to give a blood and skin sample and a cheek swab, which would be used to determine his chromosomes. After the examination, Dr. Strong wrote a report that concluded, in anatomical terms, examination indicates that Dr. Forbes' sample is a female. His chromosomes were recorded as XX, and Strong reported that he had been unable to discover any evidence of testicles. He gave Ewan a likely diagnosis of a moderate degree of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, an intersex variation in which a person with XX chromosomes produces unusually high levels of androgens and may therefore have, for example, an enlarged clitoris. In court, Ewan did his best to undermine this report, just as he had done with Margaret's letter. He said that he had been given an anaesthetic without warning or consent, contrary to the terms of their agreement, which had caused long-lasting damage to his arm and hand. He also said that he had mentioned Dr. Kawadius' statement that he likely had testicles and had pointed out swellings in his groin. In his report, Dr. Strong had dismissed these swellings as varicose veins, but Ewan said that Dr. Strong had not even examined them himself, instead having Dr. Price, who was a more junior doctor than Dr. Strong, do it, and that they'd seemed unsure of their findings. Why wouldn't they have just called the other doctor in? Kawadius. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's just on leave. Yeah, maybe. They just couldn't get him. Ewan also claimed that after the report found him female, he had contracted bronchitis and then coughed so hard that a testicle had partially descended. (laughs) Awfully convenient, Ewan. Yes, it is. (laughs) He had then performed a biopsy on himself on the 19th of January, 1967, with the aim to confirm if it was testicular tissue and to determine if it was healthy as he was worried that this posed a cancer risk. The sample that he removed was sent to a pathologist and the biopsy site was covered with a plaster. Shortly after, he met with a doctor who was an authority on intersex conditions who Ewan hoped to use as an expert in the trial. 
The doctor noted during the trial that he was unable to properly examine the area or to swear whether the swelling was a testicle or not due to it being covered with the plaster, which I just think is extremely funny. Maybe Ewan is telling the truth, but like the fact that he coughed and had a testicle descend is very convenient for his case. And then the fact that nobody could examine that except him, also incredibly convenient. (laughs) I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not coughing until your testicles descend is a real thing. I do not know. Mm. But the whole story does just seem fairly contrived. Yes. I just, just love like, oh, I definitely have a testicle. Unfortunately, you cannot see it. Thank yeah. you. I have run some tests myself and confirmed that this is a testicle. Yes. I'm a doctor. I have a license. It's here. It says, oh, Ewan is a man. Thank you. Goodbye. Unfortunately, the sample he sent to the pathologist was lost. Ewan took a second sample on the 2nd of March 1967 and sent it to the pathologist under his colleague Dr. Manson's name, although Dr. Manson had not taken it or seen it. He also had a third sample taken on the 28th of March, this time by Dr. Manson in the presence of Reverend Reed. Oh, is Reverend Reed just like his local priest? Yeah, just like the minister from his kirk. It's clear that Reverend Reed, from his testimony, was in the room but did not witness the actual biopsy. Okay. Okay. So they were just like, this will look more legit if we call a priest in, but the priest wasn't actually doing anything. No, like, he didn't really witness it. I'm unclear why they took a third sample. Maybe it was just for the sake of having it be done by someone else and with a witness. But when the pathologist results came back, it was found to unquestioningly be testicular tissue. Okay. Could be true. A very convenient story. I feel like the chance that he just sent some random testicles to the pathologist seems not small. Yeah, I think the chance of that is high. Yes, and this is also what Playden believes. She believes that Ewan just did not have a testicle at all. Yes, she believes that he acquired a sample of testicular tissue in response to Strong's report, describing the dissension of a testicle at Ewan's age as a scientific impossibility. Okay, is that true? That I don't know. Okay. I was going to say, I don't really trust her in that, given that she's clearly given us information about, like, medical stuff in this era that was not yeah accurate in the first place yeah. but mm-hmm. i do feel like the i have a testicle but there's a band-aid so you can't see it <laughs> you know but yeah. don't worry the priest was definitely here and has definitely seen it and priests can't lie so <laughs> really in a way god says i have a testicle so what do you say to that <laughs> yeah this is the strongest piece of evidence that Plaiden has for you and being trans rather than intersex mm-hmm. uh, and she largely treats this conclusion as self-evident saying that Ewan was trans and had been lucky enough to get access to HRT before puberty, nothing else made scientific sense. Okay, I'm still not convinced he had access to HRT before puberty, but I do think that this is some pretty convincing evidence that Ewan was trans. Yeah, this understanding of Ewan's case does appear elsewhere, which made me feel better because there's basically nothing that I'm willing to just take Playden's assessment alone on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most notably, in 1999, Professor L.G. Gurin, who was an endocrinologist who worked with transgender patients, assessed the medical evidence given at Ewan's trial and concluded that Ewan was most likely a transgender man rather than intersex. He runs through various intersex variations that were suggested in the course of the trial, such as congenital adrenal hyperplasia and androgen insensitivity syndrome, noting that none of these are consistent with the descriptions of Ewan's body and medical mm-hmm. history. He specifies the presence of XX chromosomes and testicular tissue as being difficult to explain. He says that men with Klinefelter syndrome do have XXY chromosomes, but also a penis and scrotum, so that that's ruled out. Experts at Ewan's trial suggested the possibility of true hermaphroditism, wherein an individual has both testicular 
testicular and ovarian tissue, but this is extremely, extremely rare. Gurren also noted that Strong and Price did not find testicular tissue while specifically looking for it, and queried the extremely unorthodox procedure around the biopsy, suggesting that the tissue tested was actually from someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gurren concludes that there was no good medical explanation except exogenous male hormone administration. Okay. I will also note, just quickly, that Gurren believes, contrary to Platon, that Ewan began HRT at the age of 39, presumably with Dr. Kowadius. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of disputed that, but you know, nevertheless, Platon is still alone in her like teenage hormone yeah. theory. Yeah, so that's, I guess, all the information we're going to get about whether Ewan was trans rather than intersex and... Is there anything else you want to say about that? I feel like we've all kind of landed in the same place of like, yeah, that seems fairly likely, even though Platon goes a bit hard on it. I guess it is worth raising that it's actually just not particularly important in Mm. a lot of ways to Ewan as a person. Mm. Like, Ewan is very clear about his gender identity. We could spend forever trying to unravel the testimony in this trial and whatever medical procedures went on. But at the end of the day, for us, it's just not that important. If you know what I mean. It's not that important to Ewan's gender identity or anything like that. I guess what's more important is looking at it from, like, the context of his society and the fact that in his society he had to prove he was intersex rather than trans in order to be recognised as a man. Yeah, but I mean, specifically, the conclusion of that is not that important. The fact that this was the debate is what we learn Mm. from, rather than what, you know, what was Ewan really is not the question. I don't think that you can have that debate without trying to establish what are lies, though. I think also it's worth talking about because... It highlights the ways that trans and intersex history at this time do become difficult to separate out. Yeah. And it's worth taking the time to look at why that is, because if we don't, we we do just kind of conflate them. And Mm. a conflation of trans and intersex experiences is something that we should be careful about. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, you are correct. Ewan is a man. At no point have we had to have a discussion about this. And we never should. Yeah and, yeah, and, like, there would be no reason to. Like, it's very, very clear, you know, all of those kind of, like, impossible to fulfill scenarios of, like, well, we don't have that person, you know, we don't have James Barry or whoever saying that they were a man. Like, in this case, Ewan just ticks all those boxes. He was like, yes, well, as a child, I was like, I am a boy, and now I'm here, and I'm a man. As you see, I'm a man. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, cool, that, that's, that's very straightforward. That's very straightforward, yeah. Yeah, it is something I'll get into a bit later, but I do think you're kind of hitting upon something that I thought about as well that like UN is uniquely positioned in some ways to have this conversation about what was going on in Mm. how trans versus intersex people were considered at the time but he himself is just some farmer yeah he doesn't care yeah for him he's just a man his like his specific anatomy he's trying to prove to the courts for legal reasons Mm. but that's not activism he's just in this situation I guess like the other reason which is much less serious for trying to highlight this is that I do feel it says a lot about his personal if he's willing to pull this audacious like yeah. gender heist basically <laughs> yeah and i think it kind of portrays him as yeah like a very bold and i don't know like not like playful because obviously this isn't fun or anything like that but just like the idea of if this is a lie of him sitting in court and saying to 12 doctors and several lawyers and a judge yeah so i just had a bit of a cough and then there was a testicle there <laughs> <laughs> yeah dispute it you know is is like pretty amazing yeah Um, respect i guess yeah 
It took eight months for Judge Hunter to return his decision. Hunter understood that Ewan was intersex and he understood his role to be determining which sex predominated. He was clear that he felt individuals should only be able to change their sex legally if they were intersex, not transgender, saying it's one thing to make life in society easier for those who exhibit the intersex conditions of hermaphroditism or pseudo-hermaphroditism, and quite another to leave a possible loophole for those suffering from sexual aberrations or deviations, such as certain transsexuals who may have the strongest motives or drives to pass, legally or illegally, from one side of the sexual spectrum to the other, and who, in the event of success in achieving the social sex of their desire, might bring disastrous consequences not only upon themselves but upon others in the society in which they live. What are the disastrous yeah, consequences, Hunter? We'll be waiting for it for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the main criteria which he took into account were chromosomal sex, gonadal sex, apparent or phenotypal sex, and psychological sex. So let's go through those. Ewan had XX chromosomes and was therefore genetically female, but he noted that there were men with a second X chromosome, such as those with Kleinfelter syndrome, and did not therefore place great value on this criteria. The judge accepted that Ewan had a testicle, although he noted the unusual circumstances of this evidence and considered it likely that Ewan also had an ovary. He placed considerable importance on the presence of a testicle as it might account for Ewan's physiological and psychological masculinity. He considered the phenotype of Ewan's genitals, which is just to say effectively the appearance of his genitals, and he thought that they were extremely difficult to categorise as either male or female, but put great importance on his ability to function in what Hunter considered a male way with his wife. What's functioning in a male way? Are we assuming that Ewan has a penis? So, like, I understand that when people, like, take testosterone, their clitoris is enlarged. Yes. Like, this is fairly consistent with descriptions of Ewan's body. Okay. And in the trial, when Patty is questioned, she's asked if Ewan and her are able to have penetrative sex, and she says yes. And so Hunter's kind of saying, you know, you have something that's kind of close enough to a penis that you can kind of close enough penetrate your wife with in the way that, you know, a cisgender man could. Okay. So that seems like straight sex to me. (laughs) He (laughs) also says that, like, if there's a testicle and if there's some kind of penis, then maybe it's possible that this person could father a child. And that also seems like a man thing to Hunter. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of what that's about. I really just wanted to clarify, I guess, whether we were talking about a body or we were talking about some kind of, like, desire to penetrate and like a phallic object of some kind. No, there's no discussion of, like, a dildo or anything like that. I assume that would have gone poorly in the trial. Like, No, I just wasn't really clear whether we meant he has the body parts to have penetrative sex with this person or whether it meant, like... He has some kind of masculine sort of virile desire about this. I guess it's (laughs) kind of both in that he is understood by Hunter both as having a body that would allow him to play a typically male role and also that he and Patty conform to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whether or not they did or not is another question. I trust Patty to lie for him. Like, whatever. Obviously. (laughs) Not important. (laughs) The judge was cautious about the inclusion of psychological sex, noting that he did not think it should be used to determine that, quote, a person was legally a male, although the physical sex of that person was clearly female. So, i.e. in the case of transgender men. So he's concerned that if he uses psychological sex as evidence, that will open the door for more trans men to be like, yeah, but I'm psychologically a man. Yeah. Which Hunter does not think should be allowed. Yeah. However, in the case of an intersex person, as he viewed you and to be, he thought it was appropriate to consider that as an element 
mm-hmm. of his decision and he understood Ewan to be psychologically male, so, you know, yeah. we can agree on that at least. Yeah. He concluded, taking all the criteria together, it is my opinion that the second petitioner is a true hermaphrodite in whom the male sexual characteristics predominate and that this has been the position throughout his life. Okay. On the 4th of December 1968, the Aberdeen Press and Journal announced that Ewan would be entered on the rolls of the baronetcy as the 11th Baronet Forbes of Craigieville. Take that, John. Yeah. Ewan remained closely involved with and accepted by his community following the trial. In 1976, Paddy and Ewan moved to a smaller home after Ewan had a stroke. Here, Ewan wrote his memoirs called The Old Days, published in 1984. In it, he makes no mention of his transition, medical history, or the court case. In 1989, he published The Dances of Don, a memoir about his dancing company. I love that he has this dance company. I think that's great. (laughs) Yeah. In this work, he quoted many newspaper articles, and he always revised his name to Ewan and his pronouns to he, him, and quoting them. So, you know, another thing we just don't even have to ever discuss. Like, I know that we've obviously called him Ewan throughout this episode and used he, him pronouns, but at least that really saves any historian from getting confused about that. Yeah. I don't know if there is... Anyone who has tried to argue that, like, he was not a man, I would Mm. love to see that attempt. That would be a very difficult argument to mount. Yeah, but, you know, like, a lot of those readings are pretty disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. On the 12th of September 1991, Ewan passed away in the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary from pneumonia at the age of 79. Ewan was cremated and his ashes were scattered onto his own lands. He left everything to Paddy and she was able to live comfortably until she passed away in 2002. Ewan's memorial service was held in the Kildrummy Kirk and the tribute was given by the session clerk, Henry Duncan, who had known Ewan for 50 years. He said, Within each of us who are privileged to meet and know him, there will remain a warm and glowing affection for him which needs no written word and which will live on in all our memories. Hmm. I wanted to return now to some of the broader themes of Playden's book. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, Playden analyzes Ewan's life within the context of 20th century trans and intersex history. This is, I think, in many ways quite a valuable undertaking. Uh, we've spoken about this earlier on in the episode as well. And I think that trans biographies are generally improved by their subjects being placed within some kind of wider context. I feel with a lot of these, and this doesn't just go for like trans biographies, but for queer biographies in general, historical biographies, you can sometimes get this impression of someone who may have individually been queer, but who existed in a complete vacuum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If if they're queer, it's just kind of by a fluke, and they certainly didn't belong to like a wider context in which maybe other people were queer. Uh, So I think that even though Ewan doesn't have like a bunch of trans friends, the fact that she situates him within this wider context is, is still very valuable and still good. However, Playden's execution of this is, I think, quite flawed. She spends a considerable amount of her word count on significant contemporary events or people that have literally just nothing to do with Ewan. And she does try to make connections between him and them, but it's often quite unconvincing. For example, she outright states that Ewan would have read works by significant contemporary trans people Lily Elba and Michael Dillon. There is no evidence of this. And she goes so far as to say it is tempting to wonder whether Ewan and Michael ever met. And, you know, Mm. like, yes, that is a fun thing to think about. But again, there's really no evidence of this. And I think in doing this, Playden makes a lot of assumptions about Ewan's experiences and implies a level of involvement and identification with the trans community that she just hasn't evidenced. Yeah. I also want to return to the title of her book, The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, which gives us an indication of Playden's central contention for the book. Playden details her experience working with lawyers as an expert on LGBT human rights for a case in the High Court of Justice to allow trans people to correct their birth certificates in the UK. 
After their case was rejected, one of the solicitors involved heard from fellow solicitor Terence Walton. He had represented trans woman April Ashley in the 1969 court case Corbett v. Corbett, which was used as a precedent for denying birth certificate correction to trans people because of the judge's decision that sex could not be changed. Walton said that he and Ashley had been informed of Ewan's case but told they couldn't use it in court and sworn to secrecy because there are some interests that it is more important to protect than the rights of individuals. Playden investigated Ewan's case and found that she was unable to access the court records, although these should have been publicly available. She eventually received a copy after two years and with the intervention of an MP. Playden understands that, and I quote, until the late 1960s, trans people lived in complete legal equality with everyone else. What? What a life. End quote but that Ewan's case was hidden in this way to prevent it from being used as a precedent for other trans people to change their birth certificate to avoid this undermining male primogeniture. And then Corbett v. Corbett happened and and trans inequality happened after that forever. So (laughs) when Playden says complete legal equality, is what she's saying that there were no laws specifically targeting trans people or specifically preventing people from changing their birth certificates? Is that the claim she's making? Your guess is as good as mine because she does not clarify. Oh, well, I mean, good for those trans people living in complete equality. I hope they enjoyed it. Now, the best I can figure is what she means is trans people were legally allowed to change their birth certificates. Mm -hmm. This does not appear to have been the case from the information you've given us. (laughs) Yes. I mean, obviously, like, the judge in Ewan's case was very actively being like, we will let Ewan do this because he's intersex, but I need to ensure this doesn't set a precedent for trans people. Like, that was obviously really on his mind as he made his judgment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this is quite difficult. I do not have the sufficient legal knowledge to really comment on this. Obviously, it gets into the workings of the legal system in both Scotland and yeah. England. But I did have significant reservations about this, some of which you've already raised. As you sort of said, I'm aware of individual trans people managing to change their birth certificates. But this has always been achieved for those people claiming to have been intersex, mm-hmm. sometimes with the deliberate collusion of doctors, because if they did not do that, they wouldn't have been allowed to do so. Whether he was trans or not, his case was decided on the basis of him being intersex. His case was specifically decided on the basis of him arguing that he wasn't trans, basically. I also wanted to add that Playden herself notes that a case decided in a Scottish court was not a binding precedent in an English court where April Ashley's case was heard. She says it still could have been used as relevant information, a statement that is seemingly supported by Walton's experience, but this still severely undermines the importance that she tries to lend to it. I also wonder how much of it being covered up is attributable to the deal that you instruct to have the case heard privately. Mm, yeah. Like, I don't know enough about Scottish legal procedure to claim this outright, but it seems an obvious question to me, and Plater doesn't really address this possibility. I also yeah. don't understand enough about the legal system in the yes. UK to make deeper comments about this, but it seems like there's a lot going on here that Plater also doesn't fully understand. Or is just choosing what to mention and what not to mention as suits her argument. Or, like, if we want to be generous, just isn't capable of conveying and writing very well. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. possible, that she understands the legal system and... We did not understand what she was trying to say. But, like, I tried really hard. I trust you on this. I know how hard you tried. (laughs) And you shouldn't have to try really hard Mm. to understand a book. But, like, to be clear, the problem with this book was not that it was very jargony or anything. It's written in very, like, easy to read. It's just that the sentences don't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hell of a criticism. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, like, I don't doubt you. That's just... Mm. It's, It's just been very weird... 
reading this book and being like, well, hang on a second. I don't know about that. Because the reviews for this book are almost universally positive. And I just don't really understand how that can be. And I did find some people kind of criticizing it, but I would have to dig around in that person's like social media presence for less than a minute to discover that they were just blatantly TERFs. I think that does happen in a way where people who are not TERFs will praise like queer media in general simply because it's queer media in that way where it's like it's better for us to have this at any quality than not have this and I'd rather encourage that yeah and I think you know if you're not a turf and you're reviewing that book you may feel reluctant to criticize that book because you feel like you may be accused of being transphobic like I feel like that could also be a factor in some of these reviews or in the way where if you say something against it, you're afraid that your comment will be used by TERFs yeah. later. I mean, that's kind of and how kind I of felt in criticizing yeah. this, is that like really the only people who agree with me are like virulently transphobic. I went back and I looked at my arguments and I tried to kind of be like, am I doing something wrong here? And I was like, no, like I stand behind everything I've said. Mm. The last thing I wanted to talk about regarding Platon's book, and one of the biggest issues with it, is the way it conflates transgender and intersex people. Platon claims that early to mid-20th century medical experts viewed being transgender as an intersex variation. Now, it is true that some doctors held this position. At Ewan's trial, Dr. Martin Roth said, many authorities do admit as one class of intersexual personalities who have no identifiable physical anomalies but do deviate very markedly in their behavior or in their psychological characteristics to a sex which conflicts with the physical sex, so they do exhibit the phenomenon of psychological intersex. If I might just add, the underlying assumption is that the psychological forms of intersex probably have some underlying constitutional basis which remains yet to be defined. I've definitely encountered this before Mm -hmm. when seeing people like talk about transgender stuff from that sort of era. That idea that it's like, it's a medical condition that we don't fully understand. When we have better brain scans, we'll be able to show like the physical difference here or Mm. something. Yeah. And there are various other examples that Platon herself includes of quotes from the time that indicate that this attitude existed. But it's also clear that there's not a consensus on this. Platon herself cites a discussion in the British Medical Journal where in response to a doctor referring to trans people as hermaphrodites, psychiatrist Clifford Allen said they were instead maimed and mutilated into travesties of the opposite sex. This is the understanding that seems to have prevailed in the legal courts. Okay. We've already seen this in Ewan's case, you know, that trans people in Hunter's judgment should be very distinctly separated from intersex people. And we see this in other instances as well. So in 1957, a trans woman attempted to correct her birth certificate through a sheriff's court in Scotland. She claimed to have spontaneously feminized, but doctors determined that she was transgender rather than intersex and the court refused her. That follows on from the way that Ewan's court case played Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they had concluded that he was transgender they would have thrown that out that is my understanding to her credit platon acknowledges that there is this lack of consensus but she does so through the categorization of contemporary medicine into two categories scientific medicine which viewed trans people as being intersex and pseudomedicine which viewed them as mentally ill i don't know whether she intended this but that certainly puts her on a side here 
It does. And I'm not entirely against that. I think refusing to provide legitimacy to the latter view and not pretending that these are both neutral ways of viewing trans people is good. My problem is more that it positions the former as factually correct. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sort of what I meant. Like calling one scientific and one pseudo-medicine definitely says this one is true and this one is false. Yes. The way I would understand these, you know, and like, I'm still learning about this period in history, so all of this is, like, you know, knowledge that I have now that we will continue to learn better and update as we do this podcast for more years, is that both of these are opinions that exist at the time, that are both reflective on the time, and that we both now consider to be outdated. What she's able to do through calling one of these scientific is that she's able to position this as the only real medical opinion that exists at the time. And through doing that, she's able to imply consensus. She basically, like, does a sort of no true Scotsman about this. (laughs) Yes, but she also just never says it outright. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing I was talking about at the beginning where it's very difficult to kind of actually pin down what she is claiming and feel like you're, you know, fairly conveying her argument because she does say, like – you know, as all, like, scientific medical doctors at the time said, trans people were intersex, you know, it was only, like, in pseudo-medicine that they were considered otherwise and stuff like that. But she'll also include these quotes, like, from, quote-unquote, pseudo-medicine in her book, where, like, the evidence that she herself is giving is indicating a more nuanced perspective on the world than she will imply in sentence fragments. Assuming that she assigned these two terms herself. She did as far as I'm aware. Yes. Calling one scientific such that she's able to say all scientific medical doctors believed very much seems to me like it's intentionally lending legitimacy to this view. You know, she could have chosen a different word. She could have. Rather than one which carries such a weight of like legitimacy and kind of like institutionalized. So I wanted to give you kind of an example of like what she will say and then kind of like the evidence that she will give that contradicts that. So she says, for example, when Ewan had corrected his birth certificate and married, being trans had been an intersex condition and he was not regarded as having any kind of psychosis. Then she also implies that Ewan lied to Dr. Kowadius and points out that his medical records had been lost in the war and couldn't contradict him and that Dr. Kowadius likely understood him as having androgen insensitivity syndrome. So which is it? You know, did Dr. Kowadius hear a bunch of lies and then diagnose him incorrectly with an intersex condition? Or did Dr. Kowadius say, oh, you're a transgender man, that's the type of intersex, cool, I'll help you transition. Like, which is it? I... Also, <laughs> are you okay, Eli? I'm really not. <laughs> I feel gaslit by this book. So, also, the term scientific medicine reflects her view that not only were trans people understood as intersex in the 1960s, that trans people just genuinely are intersex and should be understood as such today. She doesn't really provide an argument for this. She just sort of treats it as an established fact that she kind of gradually ramps up over the course <laughs> of the book. That's just so baffling. So, Playden discusses a 2018 NHS specification on trans healthcare, which calls the discrepancy between birth assigned sex and gender identity, gender incongruence. I just tell you that so that you know in the following quote I read from her, gender incongruence essentially just means being trans. Okay. She comments, since gender dysphoria is not a mental health condition, its treatment is physiological using endocrinology and or reconstructive surgery, plus a range of physical therapies. In this reading, gender has taken on an anatomical identity and become medically indistinguishable from sex. 
The clinical interventions are the same as for intersex conditions so that gender incongruence, by which she means being trans, has become a synonym for intersex. So it seems to me that she's saying, regardless of what her personal beliefs are, she's saying that like the medical establishment in the UK, the way that it discusses mm-hmm. trans issues, it set it up so that being trans is treated like an intersex condition. I give yeah. her this quote because this is kind of the closest I could come to her giving a position on this. And like, I think that that's a reasonable reading on this. And I think that if what she was saying, or if what she is saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is, she might be saying. Is that in the current you know medical framework in the UK, trans and intersex conditions are addressed in the same way, fine as an observation. But she does, throughout the book, just kind of say trans people who were correctly identified as intersex by this doctor, etc., etc. So I think that she views this as being kind of fundamentally correct in some way. That's very strange. Yeah. She also suggests that considering trans people intersex might be a way to extend legal protections under UK law. Forgive me, I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because I read a lot and I was like, it's going to take too long. If what she is, what her background is, mm-hmm. is like transgender issues in law, mm. I can see how she would come to this point where she was like, legally, we should be treating this similar to how we treat intersex issues. And when she's written, that has just come out the way that it's come out. And it doesn't make any sense out of her context. Yeah. The way the book reads to me, it's not that she's saying it would be convenient to view trans people as intersex under the law, she's saying because trans people are intersex, we can use this to extend their rights under the law. I went through so many, oh, I guess she's arguing this. And then she would say something else that was like, no, okay, that's not what she's arguing. This is more fundamental than that. But obviously, to some extent, this understanding is utilitarian, which like, you know, I get this isn't a tactic that is only espoused by Platon. You know, I'm aware of other attempts Mm. to use this as a legal strategy to argue for rights for trans people. That is good. And I'm sympathetic to particularly older trans people who found this rhetoric appealing for that reason, but I still just don't think that this argument is appropriate in 2021, which is when the book was published. Yeah. Transgender and intersex communities overwhelmingly consider themselves to be separate. More importantly, intersex organizations are clear that trans people claiming to be intersex is unacceptable and appropriative, and that conflating trans and intersex communities is an obstacle to addressing and recognizing the differing needs of those communities. That sort of speaks for itself, like regardless of whether that's Platon's intending it as a, you know, a legal strategy or what, like when the people involved in these communities are clear that that will not work for what they need, then I'm like, even if you mean well, this is the wrong approach. Mm, Yeah. So I wanted to return to Ewan for a minute to end this podcast. Much of Platon's book isn't really about Ewan. And so I regret that this has necessitated that a lot of our episode, or at least the end of our episode, isn't really about Ewan either. I want to acknowledge that Platon tries very hard to be respectful of Ewan, but her biography often felt like an obstacle to understanding him rather than an aid in doing so. And I think in many ways Ewan is a poor choice for the type of history that she wants to write because he seemingly never sought out a trans community or the role of an advocate and he distanced himself from these experiences so much in his memoirs. 
However, I do want to note that accounts of 20th century trans history often treat its subjects as very passive, as simply being defined by medical authority, and so I thought it might be nice to end with a reflection on Ewan's determination to exercise his agency. We see this in his effective advocacy for himself in court, his assertion of his right to have a place in his community, and even in his decision to edit old newspaper articles that misgendered him in his writing. As we've already pointed out, there are debates about whether he was trans or intersex, but we haven't had to debate whether he was a man, and I think that this speaks very powerfully to his self-determination. It's very clear in the way that you've presented you and to us that he didn't want to be thought of as a, like a trans activist or a, even a trans man, maybe. He just wanted to be thought of as a man, as a member of this particular community he lived in that was no different to any other. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever good podcasts are found. If you would like to, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that is where you choose to listen to us. It really helps us to find a wider audience. You can also give us a five-star rating. Well, I mean, well, I don't want to be presumptuous. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you could give us four and a half. You can also give us a rating out of five stars on Spotify, literally just two taps of your thumb. So I would highly encourage you to do so if you use Spotify instead. If you want to know more about us, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. You can also send us an email at queerisfact at gmail.com. We also have a P.O. box if you would like to send us physical post. If you would like to find the address of that post box, I suggest you go to www.queerisfact.com, which is our website where you can find that and uh, a lot of other information about us. If you would like to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or you can become a patron over on Patreon. We have a bunch of different rewards that you can enjoy over there, uh, including the chance to vote in polls. Presumably in the fairly near future, we'll have polls up for next season. So get on over there if that's something that interests you. We'll be back on June 15th when Alice will be telling us about the 20th century American socialite, brothel owner and cook, Lucy Hicks Anderson. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then. (laughs) 